Um, welcome, everyone, to the first uh, talk of the race talks. Oh. Um, as is my want, I'll begin by offering um, some explanation before I offer some later explanation. Um, so, originally, my intention was either not to be a speaker at all this year, or if I was going to be a speaker, uh, I, I had planned to revamp the sort of OG race talk that I gave um, like in 2017, January 2017, which lays some of the, the groundwork and terminology um, and that they kind of lays out some of the assumptions that we have as a community in um, the way that we engage a conversation about race and racism. Um, I think that would have been a worthy task. Uh, I got bored with it and became more fascinated with this thing that I'm going to offer you tonight instead. Um, I nonetheless think that it would be helpful to have a kind of um, refresher on some of those basic dimensions of the, the language that we use to talk about race and racism. And so if there isn't already, I'm going to give my word that I actually have on my phone a recording of that first talk. And so if we don't already have a recording of it somewhere on the interwebs, um, I'll pass on the recording I have to um, interns who will distribute it uh, no later than this next week if you do want to listen to that. After listening to me tonight, you might not listen to me anymore for a while. So, as I imagine you've noticed on the handout, as well as perhaps on our publicity, I've titled this talk, Disillusionment, Disenchantment, and Disgust, Reflections to My Fellow White Clergy on Filling Up the Measure of the Sins of Our Ancestors. Um, I'll mention this some more later on, but the title, um, before and after the colon, uh, are, a ref are references to um, Matthew chapter 23, as well as to the quote um, from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that you have also in that same bulletin. Um, this is going to be a long talk, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about the genre of it in a second. But before I go any further, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, in case I, I muddy the waters too much later on, um, the cliff notes of the entire talk, um, and you can just leave after this if you want. Um, so in a sentence, this is my talk. If Dr. King were alive today, he would be disappointed with most white preachers, and Jesus agrees with him. Um, that's my talk, in a nutshell. Uh, if Dr. King were alive today, he would be disappointed with most white preachers, and Jesus agrees with him. So, efficient as it was for me to say that, um, I nonetheless think that a more in-depth uh, analysis and kind of attentiveness might also be helpful. And so, um, as my title suggests, Reflections to My Fellow Clergy on Filling Up the Measure of the Sins of Our Ancestors, uh, I kind of imagine this talk in the genre of an open letter. If y'all are familiar with what an open letter is, um, it is what it sounds like. It's a letter that you write to a person, but you also are like, but everyone else is also going to read it. Um, so that's sort of the, the genre that I imagine myself um, speaking or writing in. And it would be fair to ask why I would do that, um, why I would address these reflections uh, to theoretical fellow white clergy when, to my knowledge, there's not any in the room right now, and they may or may not, my fellow white, my white clergy may or may not ever actually come in contact with this talk, and I would like them to, um, but I don't know if they actually will. And so why? Why, why would I do this? And, and I want to say a little bit about that. Um, I think firstly that I, that I do it in homage to Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail to remind us, not just in the content of what I'm going to say, but in the form of the way that I say it, that the nature of the struggle against racism in the United States of America has always been and remains, in no small part, 
a struggle with white Christians. It is fought along the lines, in our country at least, it is always fought along the lines of what counts as true and false Christianity. While it would be absurd for me to think, as much as I want to do homage to Dr. King and his letter from Birmingham Jail, while it would be absurd for me to think that my words can approach either the skill, the importance, uh, not to mention the sort of reach and audience of Dr. King's open letter, I nonetheless am shamelessly inspired by him as a preacher and a writer, and I do wish to honor him and to learn from him, and so naturally I want to imitate him. Besides that, uh, I think that open letters are fun and provocative, which is my jam, um, as a genre in their own right. Um, I think the genre also represents a time that we don't live anymore, we don't live in anymore. Whenever words commanded people's attention and governed our thought and engagement with one another in ways that were far more representative of our humanity, our human creaturehood, uh, and therefore a time that in some ways was more hopeful, uh, that, that had more hope for peaceful, common life um, than the sort of loss of, of, of words uh, and the loss of engagement along the lines of rational speech, um, the insanity and the inanity that we kind of have espoused in our own day. So that's why I'm doing this. Uh, so having explained that to you, um, I'm going to do it now. I'm going to redo this, this thing. Uh, and I, I guess I should also say that um, it's a rather dreadfully unfinished draft of an open letter. Um, and so we'll see how, how bad that shows. But here we go. <coughs> My fellow white clergy. It's me, Brian Ford. <laughs> a white preacher like yourself. I'm writing to ask you to care about racism and for your care to become concretely significant in your work as a minister of the gospel. Before you stop listening, let me hasten to add that I'm a southerner, probably as much or more of a southerner as most or all of you could claim to be. Having been born in Birmingham, raised in Texas and Louisiana, and having preached all my adult life in the deep south. Perhaps even more importantly, let me add to my list of credentials that I am not a liberal, my concern for black and brown people notwithstanding. In fact, at least as regards the authority of scripture, I'll wager that I am a more tenaciously conservative preacher than you are. I offer these self-descriptions not out of pride, but in hope that by them, I may allay certain reflexes I've come to expect among my colleagues, and perhaps, if not by pleading, then by provocation, gain your attention, or at least pique your interest. A handful of years ago, the Lord led the community I shepherd, the Louisiana Tech Wesley Foundation, to start a teaching series called Race Talks. Some of you around these here parts may even have heard about race talks. Um, regrettably, uh, over those years, preachers have been some of our most staunch critics, and more broadly, Christians from outside of our community uh, have been some of the first to write us off and, uh, and begin decidedly not paying attention to what we're doing in race talks. Despite those reactions by Christians and by white preachers, I have only grown more certain that not just our community, but that Christians at large, and especially white Christians in America, need to be paying attention to racism in ways similar to, at least, we are trying to pay attention to it at Race Talks. 
And so I find myself in the difficult position of wanting to share what we do here and of sharing the conviction that, that what we do here is not only valuable, but in fact, something on the order of a public report. And yet, uh, it's difficult to imagine doing that without just coming across as being self-righteous and using myself or my ministry as uh, a criterion. Um, and so instead, I want to argue, or I want to I try to explore with you the conviction that the typical inattention to racism that I have observed by white creatures is not incidental. It is rather itself an established practice of racism. And indeed, it is the contemporary iteration of an ancestral sin of a, specific, a specifically clerical variety. And to do that, I want to appeal first and most, not to myself or to the Wesley Foundation, but to a seemingly non-threatening figure, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. These days, MLK, as you may know, is benignly venerated in our society. If nothing else, on a Monday in January, consisting of a long weekend, a national holiday, the significance of which registers somewhat on par with President's Day, but not in most white churches worshiping life, garnering anything like the attention or the importance of the 4th of July, Veterans on Memorial Day, or even Mother's Day, or even that most inexplicable of Methodist high feast days, Boy Scout Sunday. <laughs> Nonetheless, now that Reverend Dr. King is dead and his prophetic vocation seemingly domesticated, his statue in Washington, D.C., erected and standing silently within the tidy, garden-like bounds of national memory, white creatures will, on occasion, make warm and friendly overtures to his legacy, and even, when convenient, utilize quotes from his writing and their unending maintenance of the politically neutral sentimentality which we have come to prefer over against actual Christian spirituality. Given such tenderness, one might almost conclude that whatever misgivings, ambivalence, or critique white preachers may hold towards struggles for racial justice in our own day, uh, most white preachers would agree with Dr. King or would presumably have praised and perhaps even participated in the direct action that he led. I wish to show the contrary, that every detail of this familiar description of white American preachers and their churches betrays that exactly the opposite is the case. That white clergy, like our ancestors, are with few exceptions the enemies and would-be subverters of everything Dr. King fought and died for. We seem to have forgotten that in his own day, Reverend Dr. King repeatedly described white preachers and their church as representing an opposition to black people more consequential and effective than the KKK. As such, I hope to illuminate some of the ways that most contemporary white clergy, far from being benign approvers of the legacy of the nonviolent civil rights movement, are in fact the torchbearers of the devastatingly effective clerical racism of our preacherly ancestors. What is at stake in this argument is not that our churches are not woke or relevant or inclusive or even diverse enough. Rather, what is at stake in this argument is that we conduct every aspect of our ministries under the judgment of the living God. That we are not salty. That Christianity in America is boring. 
and it is recognizably unimportant. What, what is at stake is the gospel, and it is the world to whom we are commanded to bring it. To argue these claims, I'm going to offer an exposition of two kinds of texts. What we're going to do is listen to harmonies between Dr. King's writings. Um, specifically, I'm going to share uh, my, my main text from Dr. King is, is actually a, an interview that he did with a reporter named Alex Haley that was published I think in 1963, maybe before, um, in Playboy um, it's the longest interview gave to any um, reporter ever. Um, and I'm also, uh, I also have a mind here throughout his letter from a Birmingham, uh, from a Birmingham jail. So we're going to listen to harmony between Dr. King's writing and Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 23, for those of you here in the real world. We listen to, of course, tonight uh, as our gospel reading and worship. And I'm going to attempt to outline... Um, and the, as we listen to the harmony between those two passages, between those two writings, I kind of structure a framework, framework by which we might diagnose or describe those peculiarly clerical or pastoral forms of ancestral racism that I'm saying are alive and well among most seemingly harmless white preachers today. Um, at points, there are going to be strong parallels and maybe even obvious parallels between the two. Uh, there will be times that I try to draw the connections. Um, other times, the, these two writings will, will simply complement each other in ways that uh, we might not be able to even articulate. Um, but I want to say here, before I forget to, that, um, that the three D words, this alliterative title that we have here, um, these words, as you'll see later, they come from this quote uh, from Dr. King that I have, that I, you have in your bulletin. And they name um, the bizarro fruit of the white church's witness in America, hobbled as that witness is by our habitual inattention to racism. All right, so that's, how, that's what I want to do. That's kind of how I'm going to do it. And uh, let's start now with Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is pissed. And he's not pulling any punches. This is in rhetorical or preacherly or theological form, every bit as wild, forcible, and disruptive of an all-out attack as the physical action is when Jesus enters the temple and turns over the tables. Jesus is coming for the scribes and the Pharisees. He is bringing a cascade of woe upon them. Or rather, he is naming the woe that they bring upon themselves. He's calling the scribes and Pharisees to account as leaders, as teachers of the people. Uh, his critiques of the scribes and Pharisees would be important for anyone in the people of God, even if they weren't scribes and Pharisees. But especially because they were the leaders and teachers of the people. Um, the critiques take the shape that they do, and they are as forcible as they are. These leaders and teachers have created a situation in which it becomes necessary for Jesus to say to his followers, do what they say, but don't do what they do. In this description, Jesus is forming the vision of his disciples. Everywhere in the Gospels, Jesus is shaping his followers' habits of attention. 
He's saying, see the, the scribes and Pharisees. Now, don't see them like this. Do see them like this. Repeatedly, Jesus calls the scribes and Pharisees blind. He makes this description five times. To summarize broadly, their blindness is a kind of, it's, it's a misallocation of significance. They have idiosyncratic convictions about mere artifacts in the temple, for example, while ignoring the grand significance of the temple itself. And even while ignoring the significance of the one whose presence dwells therein. They are obsessed with tithing, mint and dill and cumin, things that are figuratively and literally minor within the law, while neglecting what Jesus calls the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. And so again, their blindness, Jesus describes as a misallocation of significance. They have a distorted way of attributing significance to the life that God calls his people to live. The tragic irony of this blindness is manifest furthermore in the scribes and Pharisees' educational efforts. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Uh, so the, the effort that they are exerting is radically disproportionate to the effects that that effort has. And not only is their effort disproportionate to its outcome, but the effect that their efforts do achieve um, are precisely the opposite of the true purpose of formation in Israel's scripture. So instead of inviting people into the goodness and the life-giving purposes that God has for his people, Jesus says, you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven. You don't go in yourself, and when others are going in, you stop them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You cross sea and land to make a single, a single convert, and you make the new convert twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So what's achieved in the obsessive, restrictive effortfulness of the scribes and Pharisees' teaching and leadership is nothing but hypocrisy. They accomplish no more than the appearance of righteousness, but within they are full of greed and self-indulgence. All of their labor fails to be life-giving. Um, and to the extent that they do manage to convert anyone to their way of life, they're actually bringing people into a diminishment, not an increase of life. They venerate the religious national figures that they are supposed to venerate by building and decorating memorials to the prophets of Israel. But in so doing, by alleging that they belong in the company of the prophets and that they are different than the people who persecuted the prophets, the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says, betray that they are possessed of exactly the kind of pride and lack of self-awareness against which those very prophets preached. Jesus reveals that the sin of the scribes and Pharisees, the sins, I should say, of the scribes and Pharisees are not new, rather they are old. You testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Then it's something like a sweeping crescendo of judgment, Jesus issues an invitation to the scribes and Pharisees. Fill up then the measure of your ancestors. Jesus narrates the current sins of the scribes and Pharisees as an ongoing outworking and accumulation of the guilt of those who came before them. Fill up the measure of your ancestors. 
Moreover, he promises that he is going to give them ample opportunities to do just that. Therefore, I send you prophets, sages, and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogue and pursue from town to town. Jesus will keep sending out his witnesses and servants, just as God has been doing throughout the history of their being a people called Israel. And he says he's doing that so that, in part, so that the prophets will continue to accumulate judgment upon themselves. And persecuting, see that that's prophets, but the scribes and Pharisees will keep judgment, continue keeping judgment on themselves. So he, this, this act of sending messengers to them is it's an act of judgment on the part of Jesus against the scribes and Pharisees. By persecuting the prophets and all the folks that Jesus is sending, he says they will incur guilt not just to the injustice performed at their own hands and in the span of their own lifetime, but in their own day they will incur the guilt of their ancestors. He says, so that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I tell you, all this will come upon this generation. Um, so, that's an overview. We're starting an exposition in Matthew chapter 23. I want to especially, as before I move on, call to your mind, because my exposition of Dr. King is going to be considerably longer than what I just did with Matthew. I want to remind you especially of what I consider to be the center of gravity or the point of, of, the point of contact between these two readings tonight, which is especially that moment where Jesus says, um, you tithe dill and mint and cumin, but you neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. Um, moving on to our exposition of, uh, of Dr. King. So um, here's, this quote, here's this quote you'll have um, from that interview that I mentioned earlier. There are many signs that the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. Unless the early sacrificial spirit is recaptured, I'm very much afraid that today's Christian church will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and we will see the Christian church dismissed as a social club with no meaning or effectiveness for our time, as a form without substance, as salt without savor. The real tragedy, though, is not Martin Luther King's disillusionment with the church, for I am sustained by its spiritual blessing as a minister of the gospel with a lifelong commitment. The tragedy is that in my travels, I meet young people of all races whose disenchantment with the church has soured into outright disgust. So that is the, the sort of primary touchstone of, of Dr. King's writings. Um, but it really is just the, it's sort of the vantage point from which I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you some of the, the broader sweep of this interview as well as his letter from Abraham Gill. Um, so I want to, as I already kind of mentioned, I want to suggest that Dr. King is helpful to us as white clergy um, in 2021, in part because he helps us to outline or describe the key features of, uh, of, a seeming, of a thing that is racism that doesn't appear to us as racism. 
And I want to I'm going to give you a term for the kind of racism that this is, uh, even though this isn't straightforwardly something that, that Dr. King says. This is my sort of interpretation uh, or application of, of Dr. King's writing. Um, so the kind of racism I want to try to diagnose is what I'm going to call moderate clerical racism, or some combination of those words, right? Moderate clerical racism. Um, the racism Dr. King diagnosed in his fellow white clergy was moderate racism. It was moderate not in its effects, which were not necessarily mild. Rather, it was moderate in its form. Uh, which again, isn't to say that it was moderately harmful, but rather that in appearance, it was a racism that was not grotesque or flagrant, but rather skillful, managerial, and even pastorally sensitive. It was racism masquerading as moderation. And as such, it was a racism all the more dangerous and impactful precisely because it appeared not to be racist. And as such, did not seem to admit to being a foe that needed to be engaged or argued with. Nonetheless, Dr. King did engage it. And we can sort his critiques into some broad categories uh, or registers. Um, so, these are my categories. Conflict, politics, time, violence, and speech. Uh, that is one, two, three, four, five. Five categories. Conflict, politics, time, violence, and speech. I don't know if I'm actually going to say anything in that order, but those are the ones that I'm going to discuss. All right. So, start with conflict. Broadly speaking, the moderate racism of white clergy, as diagnosed by Dr. King, was a commitment to moderation. Which is to say, it was decidedly not extreme, and suggested that extremity and any kind and any of the urgency, creativity, and passion that might rightly be called extreme was somehow unbecoming of a Christian or inappropriate for a minister. In this way, we should already be able to recognize that the white clergy to whom King was responding in his writings, such as Letter from a Birmingham Jail. Those clergy had already drifted rather far afield of the example of Christ that we find in Scripture. Such clergy were priests, we might say, of propriety. They treated order and orderliness as ends in themselves. They were conflict-averse, not just as a matter of preference, but as a matter of profession. As though all conflict were necessarily destructive. And as if there is nothing in the world or the church that is in need of destroying. By contrast, Dr. King maintained that it is in fact the duty of a preacher of the gospel to foster and create what one contemporary writer has called a holding environment for productive conflict and crisis. So here's a quote. Um, this is Dr. King describing uh, the, uh, some of his actions and the actions that he led in Birmingham. We set out to precipitate a crisis situation that must open the door to negotiation. I am not afraid of the words crisis and tension. I deeply oppose violence, but constructive crisis and tension are necessary for growth. Innate all life and all growth is tension. Only in death is there an absence of tension. To cure injustices, you must expose them before the light of human conscience and the bar of public opinion regardless of whatever tensions that exposure generates. 
Injustices to the Negro must be brought out into the open where they cannot be evaded. And so part of what's implied in what Dr. King is saying here is that this commitment to, to, to not being conflictual, um, which masquerades as a kind of pastoral skillfulness, like a good pastor is one that can avoid any kind of skerfluffle in his congregation, or much less between his congregation and the world, right? Or much less find, find himself associated or herself associated with uh, a kind of conflict that's on the loose in society, right? So Dr. King is revealing here that, that that thing that's masquerading as a kind of pastoral skillfulness, um, what it actually is, is a skillful way of, of continuing to ignore the injustice that black people are suffering. It's a skillful way to, to not pay attention to those things. The difference between Dr. King and his white clerical interlocutors ran much deeper than preference, personality, or style when it comes to conflict. Rather, they diverged along theological lines, perhaps most especially along ecclesiology, which is to say along the lines of the theology of the church. So I want to say here a bit about Martin Luther King's ecclesiology, um, because I think it will help us both illumine this register of conflict as well as provide us a bridge to the next register that I'm going to discuss, which is uh, politics. Um, so Dr. King's vocational self-understanding and his critique of white preachers were both deeply rooted in a specific vision of the church, a theological vision of the church rooted in scripture. While Dr. King's commentary about the church, uh, the white church, is, is canonically elusive, which is to say that, you know, like any good preacher, there's traces of like the whole sweep of scripture and the stuff that he says about the church. Um, it's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, and the Acts of the Apostles especially, that are conspicuous as the biblical cornerstones, or the points of emphasis in Dr. King's ecclesiology. As to the former, the, the Sermon on the Mount, King takes it for granted that the church's existence is fundamentally missional. That the church, like Jesus, is in the world for the world. The church is, in the language of Matthew's Gospel, the salt of the earth, the light of the world, the city set on a hill. And as such, conspicuity, distinctiveness, and peculiarity are intrinsic to the nature and the vocation of the church. Just to say that if the church is not conspicuous, if it isn't distinctive, if it isn't peculiar, then the church is not fulfilling its vocation. For Reverend Dr. King, the church is first and foremost a witnessing community, which is why, besides Matthew, Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, when Dr. King speaks about what the church is supposed to be in our own time, it is especially the church in, act, in the Acts of the Apostles, that earliest of churches, that he has in mind. Eager though so many of us are to explain away the book of Acts as an unrealistic or idealistic, for Reverend Dr. King, the church in Acts is an entirely practical and utterly normative example, which Christians in every time and place are called by God to creatively imitate. The Acts church embodies that part of our quote in the bulletin that King, where King describes 
um, the church, or the, the early sacrificial spirit. You'll say that phrase in there, the early sacrificial spirit. Unless you recover the early sacrificial spirit, he says. Um, it's, it's the Acts church, not exclusively, but it is especially the Acts church that he has in mind with that phrase. Um, it is a church that cherished, King notes, rather than cowered before the dangers, the costs, and the persecution that come along with following Jesus. And indeed, anyone who has read the book of Acts should know that adhering to the demands, adhering to the book of Acts, creatively imitating Acts in our own day, or any time and place, demands an ethic of sacrifice. For Acts is, among other things, the story of how the truth about Jesus turns the world upside down. And when you go around turning the world upside down, um, people are not fans of that, usually. In the book of Acts, the gospel becomes not just a spiritual message communicated to individuals. Rather, in the book of Acts, the gospel is, a danger, is dangerously compelling to people outside the church. Not just because of what the church's preachers say, but because the community from which they preach is so concretely and conspicuously converted by that gospel. What's dangerous about the gospel, as it's preached by the church in Acts, is that the people who are preaching it, they're doing so from within a community that's actually been converted by that gospel. And just loosely here, I want to bring to your recollection that part of the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus diagnoses is that they fail to convert people. The good news about Jesus does not fit, we see in the narrative of Acts, into Roman society as that society is already structured. Nor does the gospel accommodate the existing shape and pattern of individual persons' lives. It was especially the peculiar economic practices of the first Christians, the odd way that they handled their money and their stuff, and therefore the way that they cared for their neighbors, this peculiar economic practice of the early church, that's what made them so peculiar and what made them such, recognizable, such a recognizable alternative and therefore a threat to the pagan society where the gospel was spreading. One way of understanding the handling of money and possessions in the book of Acts, the church and the book the king has in mind when he describes the church, or the, the church that roots his ecclesiology, one way to understand the handling of money is precisely through the terminology of justice. Justice is a word that we can use to understand the economic practice of the church in Acts. They abandoned conventional notions of ownership and property. They liquidated wealth that had once been concentrated in the hands of the few in order that that wealth might be distributed to the many in need. By so doing, the early church was practicing not just an interesting thing to do with money, um, but they were practicing God's justice. So if you do a word search of justice um, in like a Bible thing, uh, Bible website, one of the passages you might run across is Deuteronomy chapter 10, um, where we find a description of God, where we ground the description of who God is that grounds the law that is written in the book of Deuteronomy that is to order the life of his people. There we read, God executes justice for the orphan and the widow. He shows his love for the stranger by giving him food and clothing. So, show love for the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So, 
this disposition of caring for the concrete needs of vulnerable folks. That's an economic practice commanded by God. And the rationale, the theological rationale that we have for it in Scripture is God's justice. Right? That what we're doing, we do that as practicing God's justice. Um, likewise, you could read a chapter like, I think it's Leviticus chapter 25, which describes the year of Jubilee, which is this incredibly radical economic practice built into the law of God's people in which it's impossible to ever become so indebted that some people can get rich off of other people's debt while other people have less and less and less to pass on to their children and their grandchildren. And, and it, it, it sets up a practice whereby after X amount of years, all the stuff that you've sort of acquired from people who fell in hard times and therefore were vulnerable to having their stuff, having to sell their stuff, it's theirs again. It goes back to them, right? The wealth is redistributed. And whether it's in Leviticus or Deuteronomy or elsewhere in Scripture, these kinds of practices, um, which I think is part of what the early church in Acts had in mind, consciously had in mind that they were enacting, um, they are explained in the Bible with reference to the character of God and frequently, specifically with reference to God's justice. And I keep harping on that because what Jesus says, the Pharisees and scribes have neglected in the law, the weightier thing they've neglected, among other things, is God's justice. As such, everywhere, this is going back to the Church of Acts, everywhere that the gospel was accepted, among those early Christians, everywhere people were converted to the gospel, there was an economic impact to their conversion. Because the life of the church began to flow against and undo the patterns of injustice in pagan economies. Now, I just want to be clear. That's not to say that the Christians in Acts were trying to get their hands on the levers of society. That if there had been like a federal reserve, that they would have tried to take that over. Or that they were trying to pass some kind of legislation or anything like that. That's not what they were doing. Um, but it's all the more significant then to recognize that all they were doing was enacting a peculiar economic practice among the Christian community. And yet... That was substantial enough to represent a serious and concrete disruption to the injustice of the society that they lived in, such that the, the perpetrators of that injustice said so. They articulated, and we have this in Scripture, these people are threatening our livelihood with their practice of God's justice. <clears throat> Frequently, that flowing against the grain of pagan injustice resulted in violent and upheaval, a violent upheaval and backlash against the church. So again, that's the church that Dr. King has in mind, or that most deeply roots his ecclesiology. Um, now we get evidence of what Dr. King's ecclesiology is in part from letters like, um, from things like his letter from a Birmingham jail which was a letter written in response to an editorial um, by a handful of white preachers and you know, denominational bureaucrats that had published this article in a local paper dismissing Dr. King and those participating in his direct, direct action campaign in Birmingham. Um, they had dismissed him as an outside agitator. And in response, King reminded those white preachers of just how disruptive of the status quo, just how full of conflict the biblical church was, or how much their, their mere presence represented a conflict in the world. And he pointed out that what those white preachers were saying about him 
was strikingly similar to what the pagans said about those first Christians. By the way, sidebar. Um, this, what, I, what I'm sharing with you is ends up being far more descriptive and diagnostic than it does constructive. And um, that's not because I don't think constructive work needs to be done. Um, it's because um, I thought that that would be a distraction to myself if I front-loaded that with my interviews. I want to get this other stuff done first, and I think we can do some of the constructive work together. So I say that to say that with some of these registers, I'm going to pause and say, here's some ways that I see contemporary Christians, contemporary white Christians doing that kind of stuff. Right? But I'm not always going to do that, and I'm not going to do a good job of doing that. Um, in this instance, we're just going to moving on. I'll leave you to draw some of those connections yourself. So moving on to this next register of politics. To synthesize and to simplify a bit, Dr. King took issue with the way that white preachers tried to pretend that there could be such a thing as an apolitical Christianity. Right? When I say that, so Dr. King was opposed to the idea of apolitical Christianity. Um, and when I say that, I'm kind of I'm synthesizing a variety of things that we see him say in response to white preachers. To Dr. King, and he is far from alone on this point, there is no such thing as Christian discipleship that is not recognizably political. I just want to say that again. To Dr. King, and he is not at all the only one that thinks this, um, I'm not the other one either. Um, uh, you know, folks like Augustine and uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and most people that know their butt from home on the ground um, think this as well. Um, that there's no such thing as Christian discipleship that is not recognizably political. This is not only because Jesus is so obviously a political figure in the way that he is described in scripture, nor is it only because the gospel is so obviously a political story. It is rather because politics, what politics is, is because politics concerns arrangements of power that exists for the collective ordering of fleshly life. And because Christianity straightforwardly seeks not just to save the souls of individuals, but to order the fleshly life of an actual community of witness. Right? Christianity doesn't just seek to save the souls of individuals, but to order the fleshly life of an actual community of witness. And that makes it, by definition, a political thing, Christianity is. As such, true Christians can never excuse themselves from attention to the order and the disorder, the justice and the injustice of the fleshly regimes in whatever place God has seen fit to gather them. In other words, Christians are not allowed to be politically inattentive or disengaged or to somehow um, sterilize what they say in church from anything that could be um, off limits at Thanksgiving, um, i.e. political. When Dr. King looked to white preachers to join, or to at least participate in the direct action campaigns he helped to lead throughout the South, they refused to do so on the grounds that it was not proper, it was not the proper role of the church to, quote, intervene in secular affairs. Which is another way of saying that, that the church and politics are supposed to be separate things. So, 
The reason they gave for not participating or even lending their voice in support of Dr. King was, they said, because it's not proper, it's not, it's not the proper role for the, of the church, excuse me, to intervene in secular affairs. Here's a quote um, from a letter from a Birmingham jail. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard many ministers say, those are social issues with which the gospel has no real concern. And I have watched many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion. It's an important phrase. A completely otherworldly religion. Which makes a strange and unbiblical distinction between body and soul between the sacred and the secular. Now, besides the, the richness in general of that quote and uh, the kinds of distinctions that Dr. King is pointing to as the wrong kind of distinction for us to make, I want to note as well, actually, first of all, just let me say that like, that's what it means that in practice, being like an apolitical church or being an apolitical preacher is it doesn't just mean that you don't ever say anything about politicians or particular policies or whatever it is. That is part of it, just to be clear. I think it's important stuff for people to do. Um, but what it ultimately means is that you misportray Christianity as though it were a religion that it's not. And you do that by way of making a distinction between the spiritual and the physical or between the soul and the body. Or, be, or by suggesting that Christianity is not about um, an enfleshed life in this world, but it's merely about what happens whenever we die. A completely otherworldly religion, right? It's worth noting as well, um, Dr. King's mention here of economic injustice. Um, because when we talk about the uh, particular orderings of power and regimes that, that come to bear upon fleshly life and order fleshly life in certain ways. Um, when we, and that's politics, right? Um, a great deal of that ordering comes down to economics. A great deal of it comes down, again, to what we do with money and stuff, how it's gotten, how it's retained or not, um, at whose expense, and in what ways. And so it's worth noting here that Dr. King mentions economic injustice. And I just want to clarify, if I forget to say this later, that if we want to be rightly political in our presentation of the gospel, we will do so in no small part by paying attention to the economic detail of our Bible. And, and from that vantage point, reflecting upon the world where we find ourselves and the order of fleshly, the fleshly regimes that we find ourselves living in. Also, though, um, King always and rightly kept before his readers and his listeners the fact that racism is at bottom. So I say this, I'm pointing this out partly because politics includes economics, right? But I also want to point it out because it helps us see something important about what racism is as well. He always kept before his readers and listeners the fact that racism at bottom is an economic strategy. Right, racism at bottom is an economic strategy. It's not, uh, or it's an economic practice. Um, it, is, it is the um, sustaining of inequality. That, that's what racism ultimately is. It's the practice of inequality. 
Um, it is the practice of impoverishing many for the enrichment of a few. Um, plus some other things. Right? So, um, he, he always includes, he frequently will include um, a reminder that poor white people are endangered and potentially susceptible as, 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 as the poor black people uh, of his day were to the rapacious greed, which is the basic tenet of capitalism. This is something that's easy to miss in Dr. King's work, um, and it's something that's easy to miss uh, when we think about what racism is as well, um, is the fact that ultimately what it is that that, that causes racism to be a threat to black and brown folks in our society, um, even though that threat is demonstrably greater for black and brown folks in our society, there is nothing that necessarily precludes the very same things that drive that danger from preying upon white folks. And they do, in fact, prey upon uh, white folks. They, they prey upon poor folks um, of, of any ethnicity. Um, and that's something that's really important to see um, and, and bear in mind with racism. Um, okay. So, we can try to come up with some anecdotes later on of the ways that we see preachers be um, political, if, if you guys feel like doing that. Moving on to the next register. Violence. Dr. King diagnosed a, hypocritical, a hypocritically pious concern about violence. Um, among his white preacherly interlocutors. Um, and the first thing he pointed out about it was just that the way that they, that they articulated their concern um, for violence was just like patently absurd. Um, because what they said was, in effect, that they were condemning the nonviolent action of Dr. King and, and other folks that were doing the stuff he was doing because their, their nonviolent demonstrations could provoke violence or sometimes resulted in violence. And, and that just is an absurd critique to make, right? And, and King has several nice ways of showing the absurdity of it. Um, more importantly, Dr. King warned, and I think this comes closer to the heart of, of iterations of this in our own day, Dr. King warned that it is uncompassionate to condemn the violence of oppressed peoples while not attending the agonies that have created the despair out of which that violence erupts. So he was happy to concede. He was rigorously committed to nonviolence himself. And this is something that made him unpopular with all kinds of folks. Everyone didn't like that about him in some ways. Um, he was I mean, radically committed to nonviolence as a strategy himself. Um, but he, that radicality did not prevent him from being able to affirm that there, even among black folks of his day who did demonstrate violently or who were provoked to violence in the midst of the injustice that they saw, um, his disposition toward that was not condemnation, but, or even this kind of differentiation necessarily. His urgency was to say, you can't expect a person who's oppressed to stay oppressed forever. And while by example it's evident that he doesn't condone violence, 
the more important thing that, that he tries to draw attention to is the way that um, the reaction toward that violence by white preachers evinces this lack of compassion toward the despair out of which that violence erupts. What King pointed out, moreover, was not just the absurdity or the callousness of white preachers' comments about violence, but the egregious double standard that, uh, that their critique represented. Um, by the way, again, um, a double standard is another key dimension of our sort of working definition of racism at the Wesley Foundation. It's a, it's a double standard that's put into practice, right? And that's part of what Dr. King pointed out about white preachers' condemnation of violence, is that it was a double standard. While condemning nonviolent demonstrators for the violence of persons not even involved in the nonviolent demonstration, um, these white preachers ignored the brutality of police toward those nonviolent demonstrators. And they even praised and venerated the police for what they called the police's peaceful behavior. And so toward the end of his letter from a Birmingham jail, Dr. King says this. Before closing, I feel impelled to mention one other point in your statement that has troubled me profoundly. You warmly commended the Birmingham police force for keeping, quote, order and, quote, preventing violence. I doubt that you would have so warmly commended the police force if you had seen its dogs sinking their teeth into unarmed, nonviolent Negroes. I doubt that you would so quickly commend the policemen if you were to observe their ugly and inhumane treatment of Negroes here in the city jail. If you were to watch them push and curse old Negro women and young Negro women. If you were to see them slap and kick old Negro men and young boys. If you were to observe them, as they did on two occasions, refuse to give us food because we wanted to sing our grace together. I cannot join you in your praise of the Birmingham Police Department. So he goes on, he takes, this, he takes this critique yet further to say, not only do you have this gross double standard where this like trumped up violence you're, you're sort of blaming us for, um, and where, while on the other hand you're like totally ignoring the actual and grotesque violence of the police against these nonviolent people, he, he makes an important further step to say, you also fail to praise the people that actually need to be praised. Um, you don't praise the real heroes of what's going on right now. And he pines after the day that the South will actually rightly venerate what he calls its real heroes. Um, the, the people who decided not to be violent. Um, it, like, so he's asking, like, should we praise the police who decided not to be violent when the cameras happened to be pointed at them? Or are the real heroes the people who turned the other cheek whenever the batons came out, the hoses were turned on, and the dogs were unleashed? Like, is it really the police that are being peaceful? Or like this group of people who literally had to go through training to prepare themselves for the violence that we knew would be unleashed against us and, and would be ready, in fact, to turn the other cheek deliberately as a strategy of resistance. Um, in all of this, Dr. King is, he's chastening white preachers for distortions in the way that they attribute significance. He's chastening white preachers for something that's gone wrong in what they pay attention to. 
And all of this is, is reminiscent, again, of the way that Jesus stewards the, the attention of the disciples. Of those moments where in the temple, for example, uh, the disciples will be like admiring the beautiful stones of the temple and the, the vast sums of money that rich folks are throwing into the coffers of the temple. And Jesus is like, what you actually need to look at, the real hero here is this woman who's got nothing, but she's giving the nothing that she has. That's what's actually significant and worthy of your attention. So I do want to say a little bit here um, about um, some contemporary examples or anecdotes um, in our own day of, of the way that, I, that this is kind of like reinterpreted by white preachers in our own day. Um, I guess the first thing is just that this is not necessarily extremely relevant to what I'm pointing out about Dr. King, but the first thing is that like, when violence happens of any kind, or even when like, nonviolence happens, um, that is around demonstrations against racism, and especially against police brutality in our, uh, in our society, um, first and foremost thing I want to note is that most white preachers begin from the assumption that there can be such a thing as a justifiable killing. Like before we even talk about race and racism, they seem to assume that there is such a thing as a good enough reason for someone to be killed, all right? Which is not by any means evident biblically, um, however evident it may seem to us otherwise. Um, but more importantly, I, I have to say that I've seen both liberal and conservative pastors alike too many times to count, eagerly signaling their support of police in a kind of pathetic shibboleth um, that's meant to allay the fears and concerns of their white congregations. Um, frequently, and you know, kind of tragically, this this sort of signaling that I'm for the police will happen after like really pathetic attempts to say something um, approaching truth about what's going on with police brutality in our country. So they'll say something that's like, uh oh, that might, maybe, probably not, might make someone mad. But, but I also want to mention, or, or signal in some way, shape, or form, that I'm like pro-police, so you don't have to worry about me. Um, beyond that, I think that the parallels to our own day when it comes to this, uh, this double standard of attention to violence are relatively obvious. Um, broadly, whether preachers in our own day do or don't say anything about police violence against people of color, preachers seem to espouse the sentiments of a man who texted me early last week after having encountered our poster. Um, our poster for our service last week that was a memorial to, to persons killed by police. So he ran across this um, in an edifying corner of the internet called Rustin Rants on Facebook. And uh, having seen it, I mean, having never in nearly five years that I've served here, um, he's a former board member, having never asked a single question about anything programmatically that I've ever done here, um, he texted me randomly one morning last week and said, um, I don't want to get in your business, but be very careful about talking about the police. Are you going to have a memorial service for the police slain by civilians? You need to give this a lot of thought and pray. And pray. Their grief, there is grief and sorrow for families on both sides of the issue. So it seems to me that guy wasn't a preacher, but what I'm trying to say is that it seems to me that for the most part, if preachers say anything about police violence in our own day against people of color, 
um, they, they don't do anything to, to, to interrogate the sentiments in that text. Um, and if anything, they kind of affirm the sentiments that are in that text and that are not articulated, but that are underneath that text. Um, so to put that differently, the word police has, become, has come itself to evoke deep division in our society. And so, for that reason, this is kind of going back to the conflict thing, preachers in our society are liable to excuse themselves from saying anything at all, or if they say anything, what they want to say is to affirm the existing perspective of the typically white folks in the congregation. Uh, there's more stuff to say here about um, violence, um, but let's move on. To the register of speech. So broadly, it's abundantly clear in Dr. King's writings to and about white clergy that his frustration with them has everything to do with what they are and are not saying. Here's a quote uh, that comes immediately before that main quote that is printed in the book this evening. Where were their voices? Where were their voices when a black race took upon itself the cross of protest against man's injustice to man? Where were their voices when defiance and hatred were called for by white men who sat in these very churches? So the silence of white preachers, their bold-faced refusal to talk about what is happening to and through the Southern Christian Leadership Council. Council? Conference? Anyway, y'all know what about his organization. Um, at a moment when all the rest of the world was talking about it, that silence, Dr. King points out, is not a neutral silence. Rather, he says, it is cowardly. It confirms the white Christians in the irrelevance and unimportance that they already assume toward the suffering of their neighbor. It leaves unchallenged persons who white preachers could otherwise be in a position to challenge or persuade. Moreover, silent though it is, it sends a message loud and clear within the body of Christ. We white Christians do not care about the whole other half of the body of Christ. King admits that he is personally hurt by these failures of speech among white preachers. Here's a quote. My personal disillusionment with the church began when I was thrust into the, leader, into the leadership of the bus protest in Montgomery. I was confident that the white ministers, priests, and rabbis of the South would prove strong allies and just cause. But some became open adversaries. Some cautiously shrank from the issue, and others hid behind silence. My optimism about help from the white church was shattered, and on too many occasions since, my hopes for the white church have been dashed. Aside from outright silence, Dr. King points out that even when white preachers do say something, too often their words are found to be pitifully wanting. The shape of these linguistic inadequacies mirrors some of the larger sicknesses that we've already noted above. Because what the white preacher says is decidedly non-political and overly spiritualized, it cannot help but be inattentive to the fleshly suffering of black people. Because the white preacher has mistakenly believed that it's his vocation to steer clear of conflict and not to make anyone mad, it's imaginable, it's unimaginable that he'd say anything that might actually give a real live racist an opportunity or reason to repent of his or her racism. Instead, Dr. King notes that, quote, as the Negro struggles against grave injustice, 
Most white churchmen offer pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities, end quote. That description, pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities, that's one very helpful way of naming what it is that's inadequate about the speech of white preachers. The words white preachers offered, Dr. King is saying, were something like those pitiful tithes that Jesus mocks the Pharisees for being so obsessed with in Matthew chapter 23. They were a tithe of mint and dill and cumin, but they did not speak to the weightier matters at hand. Perhaps more deeply, Dr. King points out that what's wrong with what so many white preachers said in his day about the struggle to end segregation and Jim Crow was that what they said failed to satisfy the longing of their black neighbors. It failed to satisfy the longing of black people. That's what's inadequate about the speech of white preachers in Dr. King's day. He says this, I've heard numerous Southern religious leaders admonish their worshipers to comply with, des with a, desegregation, a desegregation decision because it is a law. But I have longed to hear white ministers declare, follow this decree because integration is morally right and because the Negro is your brother. That's what he longs to hear. What King is getting at here is the way that preachers can say things that are technically true. Desegregation was, in fact, the law. But that that truth can be calibrated in such a way that the preacher does not, with his words, actually depart from the racist sin of his white congregation in order to fully embrace his black brothers and sisters. So it is technically true, but it is deliberately, in what it does not say, it is deliberately a refusal of community with black brothers and sisters. And in that way, among many others, it is a deprivation of what they long to hear on the lips of their brothers and sisters in Christ. The white preacher withholds not just words, but with them an unqualified affirmation of the black person's humanity, as well as an unqualified condemnation of the racism that denies that humanity. So there's a lot to say under this register about, uh, like in, in our contemporary moment, like anecdotes or observations that I have about inadequacies, inadequacies of speech among preachers. Um, I will not be able to do justice to the ones that I want to, but I, I will say a little bit here. One, one interesting one is that um, is the hesitance to use the words race and racism to engage the racism of our own day. And the bizarre, like straining out a can a, or swallowing a camel to strain out a gnat kind of maneuvers that white preachers are willing to go through to to try, if nothing else, for the sake of their own conscience, when it finally gets like actually insane to not respond in some way to the racism that is that is evident in society and to which society is, is reacting, like to try to do that, but to on the front end and and deliberately and articulately decide that they are going to avoid 
if at all possible, the terms race and racism. Um, so when we started Race Talks, I anticipated some of the, that some of the things we would say in a conversation about race and racism would be offensive to some Christians um, and started to some white preachers. So, for example, saying, as we have every year, that um, it's a sin to be rich, or telling Christians that they cannot decide that they can't decide what a vote for Donald Trump means. They don't get to decide, just based on what's in their heart, what voting for Donald Trump means. Um, but that a vote for Donald Trump is unavoidably an act of racism. Um, I anticipated that would be offensive to some folks. Um, I also anticipated that some more subtle theological points. For example, um, that as a matter of fact, contemporary white Christians do have some responsibility for the racist sins of people who lived and died before we were ever born. And that's a subtle theological point. It's one that I think can be forcibly. And I anticipated that some folks wouldn't like that. Um, they, would, they would take theological issue with that. But what I did not necessarily anticipate was that words like race and racism would be offensive. That talking about race and racism at all would be the thing that white preachers would take issue with. Moreover, as I've listened to some more or less well-intentioned preachers make attempts at responding to, for example, the killing of George Floyd, I've often felt that whatever the merits of their attempts might otherwise be, that they fall flat, that they are visibly unsatisfying and inadequate. One of the most consistent reasons why it is that such preachers often go to great pains to avoid using, it is exactly that they go to pains, that they, they, take, they go to extremes to try to not use the words race and racism. They try to name what's going on without using those names. That's part of why it, it ends up being so unsatisfying and inadequate. Um, they will speak of diversity and prejudice. They will talk a lot about people's hearts and other phrases that sound like stuff people say at Chick-fil-A. Um, they will make a feverishly effortful attempt to avoid the use of race and racism while insisting that the right words to use are um, the, the most general possible kinds of theological terminology, like words like sin. And they'll even slip into sort of suggesting that, you know, what the real problem is, is that just lots of people aren't Christians. And if everybody got saved, then racism would go away, and it, and it wouldn't be a problem anymore. Um, so again, there's important parallels here. I mean, there's, there's interesting questions to be asked, like, what is it that they feel is so threatened? Like, is the gospel in some way, because lots of times they do this sort of like in the name of the gospel or in the name of scripture. They're like, uh, I don't want to engage this like an SJW, like, I want to talk about the Bible. And that's why I'm not going to talk about race and racism. I mean, I had a preacher who lives near the place where, um, I'm forgetting his name, by Lando Castile, the same week that he was killed, the man in Baton Rouge. Y'all remember what I'm talking about? The man that was gunned down in the, 
in the parking lot of the gas station in Baton Rouge? Yes. Yeah. Hold on. Alton Sterling, that's right. Forgive me for forgetting. So, a preacher who, whose church was nearby that event, um, he and I were talking about, actually, I think we were talking about things that I'd heard about his sort of critiques of our practice of race talks. And in the course of that conversation, um, we came around to Alton Sterling's murder by police in Baton Rouge, which is, in my judgment, as well as the judgment of, I think, most wakeful people, a, um, I mean, a gratuitous instance of racism, um, or at very least a gratuitous evidence of racism in our society. And, and he described to me the, the piety and the intentionality with which he addressed this to his congregation, but made a point to say that he did not talk about it with reference to race and racism. And again, I mean, you are, like, why? What is the danger of that terminology? Is scripture, because that's what he said, he wants to talk about it in terms of scripture. Is scripture or Christian salvation or a doctrine of sin in any way threatened by the terminology of race and racism? For that matter, where else, and we've made this point lots of times over the years, but like, where else do we see allegedly biblical conser biblically conservative preachers be so decidedly nonspecific about sin? I mean, like, when have you ever heard a Baptist youth minister want to address the issue of the kids in his youth group looking at porn and masturbating, not, with, not by using those words, but by talking about people's heart and just sin in general terms and saying that probably they should just get saved, and if they do that, they'll stop looking at porn. Does that make sense? Like, what's going on? with this aversion to these words. Why swallow a camel in order to strain out a nap? Moving on to the register of time. This one is slightly shorter. Um, in general, the thing that Dr. King heard as a critique uh, probably most relentlessly was essentially that he wanted things to happen too fast. Uh, and, that, and that he and the people on whose behalf he was fighting for, like that they should wait. Um, and so this is the register of time. There was a vague suggestion by, by Christians in Dr. King's day that, that Christian people are obligated, somehow with, vaguely with reference to Christianity, to not be urgent or to expect too much of God or people too quickly when it comes to justice. And King responded to this by pointing out, first of all, that it's easy to tell someone to wait for something that you already have and that you never had to wait for. But also, very simply, that there's nothing magical about time itself. And that never in the course, the whole, the whole sort of sweep of time, as we know it, um, has an oppressor willingly handed over freedom to a person who's oppressed. Um, and so King argued the obvious, right? That actually we have to inhabit time in ways 
that collaborate with the truth and that advocate for, uh, for justice. So here's some, this is another one that I will say a little bit more about um, regarding like, how I see preachers doing this stuff today. Um, I'm sure that there are some similar accusations among pastors today, uh, which is to say accusations along the lines that uh, people should not be so impatient in, in their demands regarding things like, I mean, for example, police reform, etc. Um, and for sure, stalling for time continues to be one of the strategies of oppressive systems um, wherever those systems find themselves confronted. Um, so one of the things that a lot of people have noted about police reform is that like, the call for police reform is like, almost as old as there being such a thing as the police. And the things that are being noted about the, the, the sort of um, the weaknesses and vulnerabilities of the institution of policing as it exists in the United States of America, like they have been diagnosed and described accurately for like a long effing time. And um, for years, whenever there is an instance uh, of, of a societal outcry against police brutality, one of the ways that, that nothing happens is that, is that people are like, well, we need to study the issue. As if there's something else that really needs to be known. And I'm not trying to say that there's not complexity to the issue of police reform. I'm not saying that. But um, I do think we see this kind of stalling for time that is, that is coded maybe a little bit differently in our own day. Um, where it's like, oh, we should probably learn some more about it and like form a committee or whatever. And it's like, I mean, we've done that a few times. And we know, actually, it's wrong. Anyway, moving on. Um, nonetheless, I think the clearest examples of the way time figures in contemporary moderate clerical racism seems to be a kind of transferal of the accusation of impatience that used to be levied at advocates um, against injustice. So it's been transferred from them to an adoption of impatience on the part of white Christians. All right, did you hear me say that? So instead of blaming people for being impatient, I think the way that time factors in in our own day is that now we've adopted actually a practice of impatience um, as people who are asked in some way to pay attention to Racism. Um, so in, broad, in a broad sense, what I mean here is that we're not willing to take the time to even know what we're talking about when we talk about racism. Um, we're not willing to take the time to be taught and to listen to the people who could tell us something about what racism is and what it's like to experience it. Um, but also, we are reticent to devote adequate communal time to paying attention to racism. So we're not only hesitant to admit that we need, we've got something to learn, and in fact, like, we need to not be so lazy that we're not willing to take the time to learn it, but like, we, it doesn't occur to us, like, we know that a Bible study on the book of Galatians is something that it's fine to spend, you know, I don't know, a year on, or whatever, right? Which I'm not taking issue with that, go for it. That's, that's great. But we don't have an instinct for being like, you know what we ought to do is maybe devote a measly five weeks to reflecting on race and racism and the way that that impacts our Christian witness. Um, and this is, in fact, one of the things that white preachers have been the most critical of in our community. Not only have I heard them say... Sure, it's fine for you to address 
people's pain, just so long as you don't use the words race and racism. But I tell you what I would never do, is do a whole teaching series on race and racism. And that is a, that's a, that's a statement about time, about how much time is the agony of race and racism, how much time is it worthy of having devoted to it? Or consider the more benign example of um, United Campus Ministry meetings that Alana and I sometimes endure together uh, with other campus ministers, where we talk ad nauseum about the, uh, the bureaucratic mechanisms of, the bur of burgers on the quad. Um, but when we suggest as a ministry, and we have done so more than once, that we need to devote at least one meeting to us having the opportunity to share about what we've seen God do in our community through this ministry of Race Talks, and to invite these freeloading, what they would be is freeloading white people that have not done any of the work to participate in this ministry with us. The response that we get is basically this kind of polite, condescending, like, that's nice, like, that's y'all's little project at the Wesley. That's, we think y'all are great over there, like, for doing that thing. We never have time for it in that meeting. Yes. Oh, we're always going to do another meeting. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that's a practice of time. Um, and and it's, it's a practice that communicates something, right? It says something, that practice of devoting or not devoting time. What it suggests is that, like, concern about race and racism can be. Um, the pet project of some maybe liberal campus ministries, um, but it's not something that should command the attention of all of the campus ministries at Louisiana Tech University. And that's exactly what we want to call into question, what I'm trying to call into question with this talk. Again, here my best assessment of this uh, disposition toward time by white preachers is that sustained attention to racism is perceived to represent some kind of threat to the extent that white preachers concede that, like if they will concede that it's a threat, they, as I've already said, they suggest that it's like the Bible or theology that's somehow vaguely threatened by talking about race and racism. I just want to say for the record, it's not. It's not. Anyway, um, as always, however, um, I think the reality is that they sense that devoting that kind of time to discussion of racism would entail having to let go of who knows what in their own lives. It would entail having to ask questions about their organization, the people they admire and have learned from, and the way they structure their ministry, etc., that they don't have answers to those questions. Which I just want to say, that's fine. Not having answers for the questions is fine. Not being willing to live in the agony of asking the questions is not fine. That's not fine. Um, and so, in other words, I think... At a, you know, basically what I'm saying is I think that this allegation that somehow racism is like just talking about racism is just like being a social justice warrior really that's just a thinly veiled way of being like I don't know how to do this and I don't want to and it seems like it's going to be a mess if I do um, in sum broadly speaking so believe it or not we've gotten through all the registers of King's diagnosis of modern, or excuse me, of uh, moderate clerical racism. Um, his critique, to summarize, of white preachers parallels Jesus' critique of the Pharisees and scribes 
perhaps especially in that it diagnoses racism as a distortion of attention. It portrays racism as a, uh, a sort of web of practices of inattention. It's a misallocation of significance and a weaving out of that distorted attention a false holiness or piety. So, you know, it's not just that the scribes and Pharisees don't attend the weighty matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. It's that they, they attend the less weighty matters of the law and then set that up as the standard of righteousness and holiness and piety. And they're like, that's what it really means. And it's both of those steps together um, that actually create the thing that Jesus is so hacked off about. And that's actually the thing that deprives people of life, that shuts people out of the kingdom of God, and that doesn't convert people all the way. I want to say something now about the costs of, modern, of moderate clerical racism, as Dr. King has described it. So what difference does it make? And we said what kind of racism it is, but what's the cost? What's the effect of this kind of racism? Um, so, firstly, this is something we can easily miss, but it costs something. White, moderate white, excuse me, moderate clerical racism costs the people of color or people not of color who are attempting to resist racist, racist regimes. It's costly to folks that are in the fight. Um, Dr. King describes, as you've already started to hear, and some of the things I've quoted you tonight, he describes costs to like his own faith. Um, this is a really striking line from Letter from Birmingham Jail. Um, it's a really simple line. He just says, I have been so disappointed with the white church and its leaders. I've been so disappointed with the white church and its leaders. So this disappointment and disillusionment is something that that's a cost that's incurred by the people who are fighting racism as they encounter people who ought to be fighting racism but aren't. One of the most striking things to me about Dr. King, and something the significance of which I think it's easy to overlook, is his willingness to be disappointed. And his endurance through the disillusionment that comes through that disappointment. In our day of cynicism, in our, in our, in our day cynicism is talked about, or is sort of embodied, in ways that almost suggest that cynicism is like a virtue. It's something that's, you know, a marker of like a strong person. If nothing else in our, in our increasingly, in our society, um, there's an increasingly unquestioned commitment to self-preservation and self-protectiveness. And those things taken together mean that there's this bleak kind of realism and a calculating practicality, which we start to hold up as markers of maturity, all right? This bleak realism or practicality, which actually is just a product of the way that we're, we're deeply afraid of one another, and therefore we are vigilantly self-protective. But we've started to treat this bleak realism uh, and this calculating practicality as, as a marker of maturity. By contrast, idealism and hope in our society are deemed in practice, at least, no better than a kind of fanciful, fanciful naivete. Naivety. I don't know how you say it. Um, folks that are hopeful and idealistic, like we look at them not as mature, but as, as being naive and immature. 
And as such, the experience of being disappointed has come to seem vaguely blameworthy to us. A person who is hopeful enough to expect good things or courageous, uh, expect good things or to expect courageous deeds or integrity out of the neighbor, a person who finds herself disappointed and disillusioned, that person might seem to us to be weak or at least unwise. You got a track on this? Okay. Reverend Dr. King, however, was a man whose disappointment and disillusionment were inseparable from his power, his strength, and his maturity. And in fact, it is his hope, and thus in a fallen world, inescapably his disappointment, that makes him, it's part, it's part of what makes him the prophet that he is. His hope is defined more by Jesus and by Scripture, admittedly, than it is by the reality of the white church. His expectations, what he thinks he's going to see in the white church, they come from the Bible, not from the white church. And so Dr. King's faith collides, his hope collides, with the faithlessness of white Christians, who turned out to be more white than they were Christian, which is to say they were more attached to the benefits of an oppressive regime than they were to Jesus. For to be sure, Jesus stands with the oppressed, which is why Dr. King thought that's where he'd find the white people standing, the white people who call themselves Christians at least. But by and large, white preachers refused to stand with Dr. King, either in their speech or in their presence. And both in that interview that I mentioned to you earlier, as well as in the letter from Birmingham Jail, Dr. King describes vividly the moment of his encounter with the white church in these kind of concrete, but just extremely, also symbolic and vivid terms. It's a moment, this moment of his encounter with the white church, that's repeated in his life with dreadful frequency. A moment the description of which resonates rather ominously with Jesus' description of the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. And that's troublingly similar to Paul in Athens in Acts chapter 17 when he encounters a pagan altar with an inscription on it. And what does the inscription say? Bible says. To an unknown God. Yeah. So here, here's a quote of that moment in Dr. King's description of it. Time and again in my travels, I've seen the outward beauty of white churches. And I've had to ask myself, what kind of people worship there? Who is their God? Is their God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And is their Savior the Savior who hung on the cross at Golgotha? Well, Dr. King does not precisely say that moderate preachers and their congregations are not Christians. He does beg the question of their Christianity. He does beg the question of the possibility that they have neglected the weightier matters, such as faith. Is, is this Christian faith? Dr. King is asking. And he suggests that the omissions and cowardice of, moderate, of moderate racism they push white would-be Christians toward a kind of capitalist idolatry or atheism. What he's absolutely clear about is that it is the world who pays the cost of the white church's moderate racism. For though the people inside the church may be self-assured that they know Jesus, for the people outside the church, it is quite apparent that they do not. Even the people that don't know Jesus know that the people inside that church don't know Jesus. Thus, the cost of moderate racism isn't just the ongoing suffering of black people, which absolutely 
is one of the costs. But Dr. King is actually clear that he knows the goal of freedom will be achieved with or without the aid of white Christians. He's like, it's going to happen. You guys can come along or not. That's not, that's not up for grabs for him. Rather, and by the way, the reason he's so confident in that in no small part is because he believes deeply in the vitality of the witness of the gospel in the black church, actually. Anyway, rather, moderate racism costs the church because it costs the world the gospel. It costs the church and the world the loss of the gospel. What is at stake in, modern, in moderate clerical racism is nothing more and nothing else than the witness of the church. Think back for a moment to what I noted earlier about how central the Acts Church was Dr. King's ecclesiology. The church in Acts, whatever else there is to be said about it, is most amazing for its evan evangelistic fruitfulness. That's the most amazing thing about the church in Acts, is that it just freaking keeps spreading. There's like a gravitational pull of converts that cannot be stopped in the church in Acts. It is a church above all else to which, quote, the Lord keeps adding day by day to the number of those who are being saved. Persecuted though it was, beleaguered and assailed by powerful establishment forces, nonetheless the church in Acts was so compelled and it's so compelling in its witness to the gospel. It was so conspicuously that city set on the hill. It was so vividly that light that could not be hidden. That people on the outside were literally flocking to get in. And that, Dr. King points out, the compelling beauty of the gospel, that is what's at stake. The witness that is truthful enough in word and in deed to actually convert people. That is the cost of white preachers' moderate racism. The world, Dr. King says, is disenchanted with the church. Think about that word, disenchanted, and you know the main word in there, enchanted. Um, I didn't look this up because I think it's dumb to look up dictionary definitions and use them in a sermon, so I'm just going to give you my own. When I think about what that word means, enchanted, in her enchantment, I think enchantment is it's being wrapped in your attention by the disclosure of some otherworldly power that is turned loose in this world. That's what it means to be enchanted, to be wrapped by the disclosure of some otherworldly power turned loose in this world, to be enthralled by that power. The book of Acts, though it is certainly a story of the world's rejection of the church, it is all the more the story of the world's enchantment with the church and with the Lord who that church exists to preach. For Acts is the story of the Holy Spirit, the story of the God who created all things visited upon the flesh of human beings. That's what's held the attention of the world wrapped. But the church who cuts itself off from its neighbor, who accepts Jesus in name but denies Jesus in his authority, the church that deprives itself of the, of the conspicuous otherworldly presence of the Holy Spirit, what else could the world be in relation to that church but disenchanted? And that's what the moderate clerical racism of the white church does. So what I've attempted to do here 
so far, and I'm almost I'm close to done, is to argue that an inattention to racism in our own day, excuse me, an inattention to racism in Dr. King's day was a, is, a, is akin to the blindness that Jesus condemned in the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his own day, because it neglects the weightier matters of Christian witness and discipleship, the matters of justice, mercy, and faith. Neglecting those things, it doesn't just give you a misunderstanding of the law, which, like, we Christians think we don't need to worry about the law anymore, so I just want to affirm that it equally deprives what the gospel is. If we neglect justice and mercy and faith, we're neglecting the weightier matters of the gospel. Um, I have a real not very worked out constructive section here, and I'm just going to totally skip it. And uh, if you guys want to say, so what do you think people should do about it? You can do that when I'm done here in a minute. Um, if you want to know what I think people should do, instead of not, just, just not do it. Um, so moving on to, to my conclusion here. Back into our imaginary situation where this is an open letter, all right? My fellow white clergy, I've tried to argue in the light of scripture and while making appeal to the authority of Reverend Dr. King's authority. I said that twice. Authority. authority. Anyway, by making appeal to Reverend Dr. King's authority, that the typical inattention to racism among our ranks is not a matter of preference, a personal interest, or pastoral style. It is rather the sinful practice of moderate clerical racism. Our ability to name it as such depends on our having the humility to attend the ways that this racism is not a new sin, but is rather an established one which we have received from our ancestors and put to use for our own purposes in our own day. I want to recall to our minds at this point Dr. King's assertion that, quote, the judgment of God lies heavy on the church as never before, and ask you to bring that claim alongside the memory of Jesus' description of God's judgment against the scribes and Pharisees, which is manifest in the fact that he will continue sending them messengers who they will continue to persecute, and by so doing, they will fill up the measure of the sins of their ancestors. And with the ominous harmony of those words of judgment ringing in our ears, I ask you to consider the possibility with every encounter we have of injustice in this world, specifically with every encounter of racism, that with every encounter we have or do not have with our black and brown neighbors, with every Sunday morning sermon, with every Tuesday evening worship service, with every dreadful occurrence of police murder of an unarmed black person, and in so many other instances which together make up the reality of life in a racist nation. In all of those moments, we encounter an opportunity to choose whether we will fill up the measure of the sins of our ancestors, or alternatively to repent of the ancestral sin of racism, and by so repenting, choose not to neglect the weightier matters of the gospel, justice, and mercy, and faith. What we stand to lose by remaining unrepentant is nothing less than the witness of the church. What we stand to gain is nothing less than the recovery of a missionary vitality so long missing that it is all but passed out of living memory. I leave you with this modest and admittedly general testimony. Humbly as it has been for me, a southerner, a scripturally conservative white preacher, 
Though I constantly feel that I do not know what I am doing in my attempts to repent of racism. In the years we have been learning together to care about racism at Wesley, I have been constantly amazed at the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. I have seen people healed, relationships deepened, and I have even seen people converted to Christian discipleship. Perhaps best of all, I have remembered and seen with my own eyes and heard with my own ears that Christianity is not that tediously boring and manifestly unimportant steward of the status quo, that dying circle jerk social club with which the world is rightly disgusted. Instead, it is exactly the new life in Jesus, the enfleshed love and justice of God, and the good news that the kingdom of God has come, which we are promised in Scripture. It is the community of the gospel filled with the Holy Spirit, and it is worth our suffering and even our death. Amen.